Good morning. Like I said, I'm Ed Wolf. I'm one of the elders here. And if you're new with us, we want to extend a really warm welcome to you. You should know that our lead minister, Chris Case, is in the home stretch of a much-deserved sabbatical. Uh, he should be back with us in a few weeks. A few weeks. Um, can I get an amen and a hallelujah on that? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm going to take a few minutes now to pray for Chris and our body here. So uh, join with me in prayer, please. Father, you are high above all nations, and your glory is above the heavens. Yet you bend down to come near us. Would you attend to our prayer now? Pray for Chris and for Lee and their kids. Would you continue to minister to them as they re-enter into school and life here? And uh, we do pray that you would continue to refresh and reinvigorate Chris and uh, bring him back to us on fire. For our families here, we pray for grace and patience for the start of a new school year. And uh, here at Resonate, uh, we give thanks to you for our kids and our staff and volunteers. We pray that seeds will be planted and watered and fruit reaped and this year and for years to come. And we ask that you'd raise up laborers from our adults to pour into these kids. We, we need that. And we pray for your provision and placement and leading for life groups and classes for the fall. And we don't want to forget uh, our, our outreach efforts in our communities and world. Would you, would you lead us in that as well? Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would lift our eyes above the daily routines and distractions to enlighten us to see what is the hope to which we've been called. This is the reality the Apostle Peter urges us to focus on completely. And amidst the noise of a billion-dollar lotto, remind us that it pales in comparison to the incredible inheritance that is ours in Christ, that you will take ages and ages and ages to lavish upon us. While the hope and inheritance are future-oriented, Lord, we need you to unleash your resurrection power in us and for us in the present, that we may experience you as we marvel at and think about how high and long and wide and deep is the love of God for us. Father, the devil prowls all around us. We, we don't often see him. Marriages are under siege. Family relationships are strained and broken. All around us and even inside us is evil. Thoughts, words, deeds. It's crazy we don't often recognize what's happening. And you've told us about it in your word. Thank you that you've equipped us to stand. We confess our distraction and our unbelief. Awaken us together to stand with you and for and with one another, to put our armor on and to bow our knees in prayer, that we might glorify you with our lives and our lips where we live and work and play, and that we can fight for faith and be found standing victorious with Jesus. Now, please attend to your word by your spirit. This vessel is weak. Oh, so weak. But the spirit is not weak. The word is sharp and piercing and effective. 
Would you do your thing? I pray that my brothers and sisters here would see a little bit more of your glory. That's what I want. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. C.S. Lewis wrote a fiction masterpiece called The Screwtape Letters, where a senior devil in hell named Screwtape writes a series of letters to his nephew Wormwood, a junior demon. Here is an excerpt from one of Uncle Screwtape's letters. I wonder why you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy, for the moment, is to conceal ourselves. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping your patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. In Ephesians, we've seen the amazing work of God to create a new society, the church. We saw how he's calling this new society to walk according to our new identity in unity, in purity, and harmony. As he concludes his letter now, Paul brings us back down to earth to the harsh realities of our existence. Paul's suffering in prison. The Ephesians' lives are difficult. There's hostile opposition at every turn. In our own day, we see increasing hostility against the church. We see society's ethics and values infiltrating our media, our schools, our churches, and our families. And as we all know, accidents happen. Misfortunes happen. Illness happens. Jesus himself warned us that we will have tribulations in this world. At some point in our lives, I mean, lots of points probably, will encounter pain and suffering. Behind the scenes of history, there rages an unseen spiritual battle. The peace which God has bought for us through the gospel is to be experienced only amidst a relentless struggle against evil that will not abate until the end of our lives or until Christ comes. Our only hope is for survival is the armor of God. So in our passage today, we're going to we're going to see why we need armor, and then we're going to look at the individual pieces itself and see how to put it on. So uh, we're going to start with Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. Follow along with me as I read. The Word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, to withstand in the evil day and to have done all to stand firm. So verse 10 starts with the word finally, 
which is best translated as henceforth or from now on. So the command is, from now on, we must put on and take up the armor of God for strength against our evil enemies. So why? See the word for in verses 11 and 12? It's because the reason we must put on and take up the armor is because our enemies are not ultimately human. And they're not comic figures in red tights. They are demonic. The devil is behind every evil that humans do. And this is what's real. We saw back in Ephesians 2 that before we knew Christ, we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In Ephesians 4, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. So how does Paul describe our enemies? First, they're cunning. The schemes of the devil is defined as tactical shrewdness, ingenious deception. Since my wife hates scary movies, we don't watch them, but we do see previews. The evil always comes as the prize, doesn't it? when and where. Least expected. Theologian John Stott makes the following comments about the schemes of the devil. He is at his wiliest when he succeeds in persuading people that he doesn't exist. The devil seldom attacks openly, preferring darkness to light. That when he transforms himself into an angel of light, we're caught unsuspecting. He is a dangerous wolf but enters Christ's flock in disguise of a sheep. Sometimes he roars like a lion, but more often is as subtle as a serpent. We must not imagine, therefore, that open persecution and open temptation to sin are his only or even his commonest weapons. He prefers to seduce us into compromise and deceive us into error. So our enemies are sneaky, they're wily and they're cunning. Our enemies are powerful. They're rulers. They're authorities. It's cosmic powers. The Apostle John records for us several of Jesus' statements related to the devil as the ruler of this world. And in 1 John 5, 19, John declares that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So this is no provincial or regional power. It's worldwide power of considerable magnitude. And surely Paul and his readers recalled a fairly recent episode in Ephesus described for us in Acts 19 where God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, including casting out evil spirits from people. Seven itinerant Jewish exorcists saw this and decided to join the fun by invoking the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, to cast out an evil spirit from a man. The demoniac replied, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And he jumped all seven guys and overpowered them, so they fled the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. So our enemies wield considerable power, and they're evil. We saw in Ephesians 5 that the days are evil. This is present darkness. 
Darkness of falsehood and sin is our enemy's native habitat. They are dishonest, unfair, and without moral principles. They are ruthless. They are relentless in pursuit of their malicious designs. My wife and I traveled to Europe earlier this summer as we toured. We realized just how much we'd forgotten about our European history. The savage brutality carried out by Christian Catholics and Protestants against one another was disheartening. It's awful. And we walked, we walked the river walks and the streets of Vienna and Budapest that Nazis and communists stained with the blood of tens of thousands of people. Such coldly calculated cruelty, such ruthlessly evil power, such deceit, I mean, it still kills me. It's present today too, isn't it? In so many places in the world, Christians and other minorities are oppressed, tortured, and killed. It's unspeakably evil. In our own country, while there may be less obvious and outright oppression and torture, there is no shortage of greed, sexual immorality, and covetous that deceives and destroys countless individuals and families. I mean, brothers and sisters, look at the suffering and evil in our world. When humans are deceived over what is real, we can think and do terribly unspeakable evil. The horrors are too diverse to list. And these are the outcomes of the schemes of the devil. This is what he wants to do to us, to you, to me, our loved ones. So our enemies are powerful. They're cunning and they're evil. We can't see them. We can't see them. So what are we to do in face of such strong enemies? Paul exhorts us to put on the whole armor of God, to take up the whole armor of God. For what does one need armor? Armor is for one thing, isn't it? It's for battle. Life is war. We're involved in mortal combat, and we cannot survive without the armor. The evidence that a soldier takes his battle seriously and understands the strength of his enemies is seeing how he arms and prepares. We need all the armor. It doesn't do to have a nice shield, but not a helmet or a sword for your hand-to-hand combat. We need the right equipment. Protective armor and offensive weapons matter. They matter. What does the armor provide? It provides the strength of God's might. We need God's strength that he provides via the armor. We don't have power in ourselves, neither the physical power or the internal power of reason and will to survive this battle against a strong set of enemies. And what's the outcome? As we put on and take up the whole armor of God, we can stand. We can withstand the evil day. We can left standing when the battle's done. We win. We can be left at the end standing. So verses 10 to 13, we, we learn why we need armor. We're in mortal combat against enemies that are far more powerful, cunning, and evil than we can imagine. And we're doomed if we try to engage this battle in our own strength. We must understand who we're up against and take our enemies seriously. 
We can stand, we can stand, we can win, but our only hope to fight the battle, to endure the battle, to win in the end is to put on and take up the whole armor of God. So before we consider the individual armor pieces, I want to point out a few things to keep in mind. First, as we said, whose armor is it? It's God's armor. In many places in the Old Testament, God portrays himself as a warrior. It's hard to imagine that Paul didn't have this in mind as he was writing this letter. With more time, I could show Old Testament parallels to the armor pieces that he writes about here. But the bottom line is the picture is that God is a warrior and he's arrayed for battle and he gives us his armor to join in that battle. Is the armor sufficient? Does it provide strength for victory? What have we already seen in Ephesians? Chapter 1, Jesus is enthroned far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's the conquering warrior. He's the king. He stands victorious, and he rules over all. He wins. In chapter 3, the church triumphant displays the manifold wisdom and power of God for all the rulers and authorities to behold. It's as if God makes the devil stand there and watch while he builds his church over against anything that the devil can do. So our warrior God is a conquering king over all his enemies. He's wielded his armor successfully. His armor is sufficient for us in their battle. It was sufficient for him. It's sufficient for us. We can be confident, totally confident, that since Jesus has conquered the principalities and powers, we can put it on, we can take it up, and we can endure and stand. The word for put on in verse 611 is the same word from Ephesians 4 where we're told to put on the new self. And the picture is that of putting on new clothes that align with our new identities. The word for take up in 613 gives the picture not of clothing, but of grasping the weaponry in preparation for battle. And the illustration pairs material pieces of armor, like belts and shields and helmets, with non-material realities that Paul has already mentioned in this book. Faith, righteousness, gospel, peace, salvation. The application Paul has in mind for us deals with these non-material items that we must put on and take up in our minds and hearts and wills. This is important. We're, We're not passive in this warfare. We've seen that. We must actively put on and take up the armor of God in our daily lives. So let's roll through the, de- the six pieces of armor that Paul lists and consider how we can put them on and take them up. So verse 14a, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. How might we put on truth? We've just seen that our enemies are deceptive, cunning, and skeeving. Jesus himself describes the devil in John 8 as having nothing to do with the truth because the truth is not in him. He is a liar and the father of lies. We live in a day, don't we, where people create their own truth, their own reality. That's the spirit of the age. But Jesus in John 14 declares that he is the truth, the ultimate reality. 
Ephesians 4, we saw that the truth is in Jesus. And the Ephesians were taught truth in him. Ephesians 1, the word of truth is linked to the gospel. And the Ephesians believed. In these texts, the emphasis seems to be on doctrine, as it were. And so we're to embrace in our minds and hearts the truth about Jesus and the gospel, to believe it, to learn it, to love it. But that's not all. In Ephesians 4, we saw that we're exhorted to speak the truth. And the connection is made between being taught in Jesus and living in true righteousness and holiness. So here we're to embrace our truth in our minds and hearts by being people of sincerity, integrity, and honesty. So you put, put together the belt of truth, we're to embrace with our minds and hearts the truth of the person and the work of Jesus in the gospel, to believe it, to learn it, to love it. And we're to be people of sincerity, integrity, and honesty in our dealings in the world. This will frustrate the devil, the devil's schemes. 14b, stand therefore having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So how do we put on righteousness? Our enemies are evil, and they do evil. Before we came to Christ, we followed the devil in the disobedient way we live. We saw that chronicled for us in chapters 4 and 5. Callousness, greed, impurity, sexual immorality, anger, malice, slander. It's a big list. What is clear is the call for us to walk as children of light, doing what is good and right and true. As opposed to the way we lived before, we knew Christ were to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, and loving, and thankful. This is the righteous behavior and character and conduct we are to put on, since it now corresponds to our new identity in Jesus. So then to put on the breastplate of righteousness, we're to embrace with our hearts and minds our new identity in Jesus, and to actively practice and walk and righteous character and conduct. This will thwart our enemy's temptations to evil. Verse 15, stand therefore as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. The actual immaterial article of armor referenced here is readiness of or with the gospel of peace. Perhaps the most notable New Testament reference to readiness with the gospel it's 1 Peter 3.15, where we're exhorted to always be ready. or prepared to give a reason for our hope. And we've already seen in Ephesians 2, the gospel of peace extolled, where we're alienated from God and man in our rebellion, but then brought into the family of God through the atoning work of Christ on the cross, where we enjoy peace with God and peace with man by faith in Jesus. So putting these together, then our piece of armor is the readiness to share the gospel of peace. So how do we put on readiness? One way is there is great power for encouragement and hope and perseverance when I speak the gospel of peace to myself. I experience the grace, love, and power of God for me, his child, when I confront anxiety, fear, and difficulty, and temptation with gospel truth. God is good. I'm dearly loved son with full access to him. 
I'm not left to myself as an orphan. God's going to help me. He promises to do it. My sins are all forgiven. He works all things for my ultimate good. So similarly, this has been powerful to see, you know, God changed my life with those truths, but to, to look at others and to see the same. So I put on readiness as I see the power of the gospel of peace at work in me and in others. Secondly, though, in order to be ready to speak the gospel of peace, I must have a decent grasp on what I believe and why I believe it. This forces me to go deeper with Jesus in study and prayer, with the result being more confidence in Christ and more confidence in me being able to communicate the gospel. So then to put on the readiness of the gospel of peace, we're to embrace in our minds and hearts the gospel of peace in our lives and be ready to speak it to others. The power and confidence that Jesus gives to us and works through us as we do so will strengthen us while frustrating and thwarting our enemies. Verse 16, stand therefore in all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith so you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. So what might these darts, arrows be? Our cunning enemy hurls temptations, lies and deceit at us with the goal of destroying our hope our faith, our relationships, and even our lives, if we believe them. So how might we take up faith? We recall in Ephesians 1 to 3, the list of spiritual blessings we have through faith in Christ. Salvation, redemption, forgiveness, inheritance, sonship, Holy Spirit indwelling, access to God, powers like, whoa. These are ours by faith, never to be taken away. We believe these promises of God to fend off the flaming darts of the evil one. Let's think about an example or two. In Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, we're told not to let our anger fester because it gives the devil an opportunity to fling a dart. Suppose a spouse or a coworker or a neighbor says something or does something that you perceive to be a put down or an attack. Everything in you wants to retaliate. That's a dart. It's a dart of vengeance. How might faith help there? Perhaps you will recall, as we saw in Ephesians 2, that God is merciful to the undeserving like me. I can be merciful to others. Or maybe you'll remember the promise of God in Romans 12, 19, that vengeance belongs to God and not to me. So God works for, you know, God works for the ultimate good of, uh, so, sorry, so um, to believe that God has the wisdom and the ability to best address the situation since he's going to do the vengeance and not me. Or maybe something unfortunate happens, an event or a diagnosis. The thought crosses your mind that God may be punishing you somehow. That's a dart. How might faith help? You might remember that your sins are all forgiven and the wrath of God towards you was diverted to Christ. God is not mad at you. You might remember the promise that God works for the ultimate good of all who love him. So this is not punishment because God does not act that way toward his children. He disciplines for our good. He does do that, but he does not punish. 
He punished Christ in our place. So in both cases, you fend off the flaming dart by believing the promises of God that you have through faith in Christ. 17a, stand therefore, take the helmet of salvation. So how might we take up salvation? We've already seen in Ephesians that we've been saved. That's past tense. That our salvation will be fully realized when we receive our inheritance at Christ's return. These are sure things. We can't lose them. We can't lose. We can't lose it. In Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 to 10, Paul links helmet and salvation, clarifying that the helmet is actually the hope of salvation, the confidence that we will live with Christ forever. So then to take up the helmet of salvation is to believe that God has delivered us finally and decisively from the wrath of God so that we will live with him forever. This belief is essentially the same as the shield of faith. We're secure in Christ. So the devil can't destroy us with lies or deceit or accusations or fear. 17b, stand therefore and take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. How might we take up the word? How might we take up the sword? In Hebrews 4, we see that the word of God is sharp and discerning. In Romans 8, 13, we see the spirit being used in battle to kill the deeds of the flesh. So putting these images together, we see that God's written word, whose origin is attributed to the inspiration of the spirit, can cut through people's defenses, can prick their consciences, and can kill sin. Quick example of how this has worked for me lately. You know, all around town, I see the lottery billboards. You're luring me to play to win millions of dollars or billions of dollars. If I could win the hundred million dollars, then my troubles would be solved. But that's a lie of the evil one to stir up greed and covetousness in me. So I'm going to fight it. I'm going to take up that word. I'm going to take up that sword, 1 Timothy 6, 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 1 Timothy 6, 17, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Proverbs eleven twenty eight: whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. So I'm going to wield that sword to kill the sin before it takes root. So then to take up the sword of the spirit, the word of God is to use it to expose the lives and deceit of the evil one, to kill sin and thereby thwart the devil's schemes and work. So you see here on the screen here, this is the picture from our, our kids' knighting ceremony yesterday, and in it, it's kind of hard to see, but you can see all the pieces of armor. See them all there. And I'm, I'm totally sure that this is exactly the picture that Paul had when he wrote his letter to the Ephesians. So the armor of God given to us to put on, to take up, so we can withstand the evil day and be left standing at the end of the battle. We put it on and take it up by embracing our minds and hearts, the truth of the person and work of Christ in the gospel, to believe it, to learn it, to love it. That we're people of sincerity, integrity, and honesty in our dealings in the world. 
we embrace the reality of our new identity in Jesus and actively practice and walk in righteous character and conduct. We embrace the gospel of peace in our lives and we're ready to speak it to others. We embrace the promises of God and believe them, thereby dismissing the lies and deceit and the temptations of the evil one. We believe that God has delivered us finally and decisively from the wrath of God so we'll live with him forever. And we actively use the word of God to expose the lies and deceit of the evil one and to kill sin, kill it. All these pieces of armor are connected. We need the whole armor to survive the battles of life and to live with God forever. It's Jesus' armor. It worked for him. It'll work for us as we take it up, put it on. So quickly, let's look at uh, verses 18 to 22. Let me read those for us, and we'll, um, we'll talk about them. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, my, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Some commentators list prayer as another of the pieces of armor, and some do not. Uh, the com- grammatical construction leads me to favor the view that Paul's intention is that prayer be seen as a way of putting on and taking up. So God gives us his armor to put on and take up, and we need divine help to do it. We're to stand there for by putting on, by taking up, and by praying. So what's the characters I characterize our praying? Um, we're to pray at all times, often, unceasingly. We must cultivate a posture of constant dependence on the Spirit. We need them all the time. All kinds of prayer and supplication Y'all, we need to pray about anything and everything. We're never self-sufficient as much as we might like to think we are. Vigilance and perseverance. We're in mortal combat against formidable enemies. We need to be alert to schemes and arrows. We can't let down our guards for a moment. And this battle is for the rest of our lives until Christ returns. And Satan's in no hurry. He's happy to send fiery darts for years and decades if that's what it takes to destroy us. We must keep fighting the battle for the long haul. It's for all the saints. All the saints need prayer. Even the apostle Paul pleads for prayer for himself. We're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, and we are comrades and allies in our warfare. We pray for one another. And finally, we need each other's encouragement and support to put on the armor and to take up the armor so we'll survive. The corporate nature of our lives and battles is evident once again and and here like it has been through the whole letter. We need one another. 
So Jesus is our conquering king. He's victorious over rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. He gives us his armor to put on, to take up, and to pray in so that we might withstand the evils in our present day and be found standing in the end. We must feel and believe that life is war. We'll get serious about putting on and taking up and praying in when we feel some urgency about the spiritual battles raging in our lives, in our world. We're called to be wary and vigilant, but we need not be paralyzed by fear. We have a conquering king. We've got his armor. We can stand. We can win this thing. We need to put on, stand up, pray. So I wanted to finish up with an exhortation. I recently was cruising through 2 Peter, where I read um, the following in chapter 1. It's verses 3 to 11, the New English translation. I'll just read the first couple of verses for time's sake. I can pray this because his divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary for life and godliness through the rich knowledge of the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through these things, he has bestowed on us his precious and most magnificent promises so that by means of what was promised, you may become partakers of the divine nature after escaping the worldly corruption that is produced by evil desire. So I was struck by how this passage points to much of what we see in Ephesians. In Ephesians, the powerful spirit is seen over and over again. His power is prayed into our minds and hearts, and we have the powerful spirit of Jesus in us. So we know and experience Christ. And not only do we have Jesus, the word of God, but we have his words, his promises for our defense and for our offense. Is a marriage struggling? Is parenting a challenge? Are relationships frayed and frazzled? Is the workplace workload overwhelming us? In Jesus, in his power and his word, we have everything we need for life and godliness. That's everything we need for life and godliness. Now, let's be clear. We shouldn't expect a hassle-free life of blissful ease and comfort. That's the message I get. I'm retired. You deserve this. Sit back. That's not. Jesus told us in life we will have tribulation. If we follow him, we can expect persecution. We know we've seen already that our mortal enemy is relentlessly trying to destroy us. But what we can expect as we put on and take up and pray in the armor of God We'll be able to stand. We'll effectively and productively endure the battle and stand in the end to enter into the rich eternal kingdom of Lord Jesus with joy because of his promises, because of his power. It doesn't help if our Bibles gather dust on our bedside tables. We must actively engage with the word, Jesus, in his word. Not to do so shows blindness and nearsightedness. I didn't say that's what Peter said. Peter, like Paul, calls us to the effort to put on, to take up and pray in the armor of God, the promises of God, so we can withstand. So I asked myself, thinking through this, do I want to be effective and productive in my life and be with Christ forever? Like, 
yeah. Do I feel needy in my marriage, in my family? I don't work anymore, but I did. Uh, it's hard. I struggle. I'm weak. I need Christ and his power. You know, if I go to the doctor with a condition and she gives me a surefire prescription for what I need and I ignore it, should I be surprised that my condition doesn't improve? And what if I told you that I would give you $50,000 if you would make the effort to eat dinner at my house in Eastlake once a week for a year and you live far away in Villa Rica or Roswell or Noonan or Lawrenceville or somewhere? If you wanted that money or if you needed that money, I wonder if you might change a routine or a schedule to make time to travel for dinner. I mean, let's be honest, looking at myself, any given moment, I'll choose actions that I desire or that I need, feel like I need rather than what I should do. I mean, I guess I should do this. I'm gonna do what I want or what I need. That's the best motivator, best motivator. In Ephesians, Paul has mentioned unseen realities that are awesome and fearsome, powerful, cunning, evil, and real. And they want to destroy us. Do, now I'm asking myself, do I believe this? I mean, if I stop to look at my life and those around me in the world, it's like, why wouldn't I believe this? Notice the challenges to God's truth all over the place and the twisting of God's word. Temptations and doubts that come out of the blue. I mean, does that happen to you? I mean, out of the blue in good times and in difficult times. The blatant evils that people do. God, I, mean, I know I'm sitting there thinking, oh my, the way I live my life I'm afraid it, it looks way too often that I don't believe this. You know, the things I tend to pursue, man, I'm retired now, and so, you know, live the good life. I mean, it's like, you know, self-care, pad your life, comfort, ease. That's the message that I get. We don't see bombs falling or bullets whizzing by. I just wonder, will much change until I feel some desperation of attack or a desire to join the fight with my captain? So my exhortation is to listen to Jesus and to begin to cultivate our desire for Christ and our desperation for him so it drives us to put on, take up, and pray in the armor and the promises of God to fight against our mortal enemies. Man, I look at myself multiple times a day. I would desire to fill, fill my tummy, and I make time to do it. You know, if we feel the need and desire to put on the armor of God and to feed our souls even once a day, we'll make the time and the effort to do it. I know we will. Since we're members of God's family, we can cultivate this together. You heard Tristy give a wonderful plug for the classes I was going to do it, but she did way better than me. 
but I'll, I'll, I'll say those classes are good. I mean, and so, so basically, I, I, I will plead with you or I'll double dog dare you, whatever it takes. Make the time, make the effort, make the changes to get yourself in the place where you put on. Take up and pray in the armor of God. Make it happen. So, I'm done. Um, in the words of Randy Stonehill, I've got news for you. This is not a game. I've got news for you. Are you listening? Brothers and sisters, let's help and encourage one another to daily put on and take up and pray in the promises and the armor of God. These given to us for life so we can stand and be found standing in the end. Amen. Let me pray for us as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. King Jesus, amidst our lives in this crazy world, we often forget that you rule and reign now over your enemies and ours. Remind us of these unseen spiritual realities. As we come now to your table, open our minds and hearts to the reality of this gospel of peace that Paul has spoken of in this Ephesians letter. Oh, would you enlighten us to marvel at your glory and then to marvel at our sonship and access to you that you have attained for us at the cross. We call to mind how we don't deserve any of this grace. We acknowledge our sin to you. I ask that the monolithic, but God, of Ephesians 2, 4, would reverberate to our core and would cause us to dance with joy. When we lift up the cup of salvation and call on your name now as we celebrate the sacrament together. We give thanks and glorify your name. Amen.